Thank you, folks. What a great opportunity it is to be here. I am so grateful for the chance uh, to be with you all. I mean, for me, this kind of meeting is everything. This is what I do to fulfill the purpose of my life. This is how I make my living, and this is what I do for fun. So I have a new doctor. My doctor retired, and I was just at the very first visit with this new doctor, and we were in a get acquainted session, and he was asking me what I do. And he said, what would you do if you were independently wealthy and you could do anything you wanted to? I do exactly what I'm doing right now. I'd be doing it where I do it. And uh, it, this is just great. I am so glad you folks are here. I just want to say a word briefly about Dayspring Bible College. It's a ministry of the Quentin Road Baptist Church. I am a big believer in the old-fashioned Bible College that our movement was built upon. There are not very many of them t today. Ambassador Baptist College is one, and I commend them for it. But uh, I, I'm just so blessed to be a part of and live on campus at Dayspring Bible College. About five miles from our church, we have 30 acres in the state forest. I mean, literally, you drive through the state forest to get there. It's a, it's a beautiful location and a marvelous set of facilities. Uh, best facilities I've ever seen for a small Bible college. We only train people for full-time Christian service. We have wonderful programs for that that I'm very excited about. I have assumed responsibility for the academic programs as well as some other things at our college. And we just this summer went through everything, looked at everything, re-examined everything. How can we take a good situation and make it better? And uh, we, we have a wonderful, and, and this is how I got acquainted with the college. I started sending young people there, uh, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago now. Uh, because I saw the one-on-one -on -one investment that they made in young people. I sent them some outstanding young people that would have done well in any Bible college. I also sent them some young people that reminded them more of me when I went to Bible college. I took a little extra effort. And, and they did great with the young people I sent them that didn't need any extra effort. And they also did great with the young people I sent them that did need the extra effort. And it just absolutely sold me on the school. I could say a lot of things about it. We have the best work scholarship program I have seen. People ask, we talk about a school, and we're somewhat rural. And they say, what the job opportunities like? I said, the job opportunities in the area really aren't that great. But all but one of our students is employed at the school. We have so many things involved at the church and school in our ministry. So many job situations. It is just incredible. Last year, every student had a job with us. This year, every student but one has a job with us, and that's just because he chose to do something else. So I'd be happy to talk with you more about it. Again, all the printing is so tied up because of COVID. We have a brand new catalog uh, incorporating all the changes that we have made in various things. And I'm sorry I don't have them. I thought we would have them by now. Wish we had them by now. But uh, we do have a full program on the Internet where you can take courses on the Internet. And we have over 100 classes now incorporated in that. And you can take the whole Bible program from one end to the other. You can take one class just because there's a subject you want to know more about, or you can finish a degree. And we've found lots of people who uh, part way through Bible college and they need a way to finish. 
We've sometimes made a class available to other Bible colleges because they, they got somebody needs that one class, and we, we work with them. But we have all that information and in programs, and I'd be delighted for you to have it. You can just Google Day Spring Bible College, Mundelein, Illinois. We're in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. And uh, I'm using four messages this week out of a series of dozens that have to do with the grandeur of the Creator God. Man, have we lost in our culture today, even in our quote-unquote evangelical churches, we've lost a sense of who God is. We treat God very lightly. We adjust His teaching. We act as if, yeah, I know, you know, what I'm doing is not obedient to the Lord, but it's not going to be a big deal. They're not expecting Him to do anything about it. It is amazing how, even in theological circles, how lightly God is treated today. Pastor had mentioned my having a chance to be at the King James celebration at Georgetown eight years ago now. And they had a number of different speakers. They had one other speaker that was a King James Bible believer. He began it. I ended it. I was the last of 12 speakers. Everybody was there to say something good about the King James Bible, but they talked about it is good literature and uh, it, its historical influence and things of that nature. And, and uh, so three days, and there's four guys speaking that last day. It's an interesting experience. It um, was all televised. And so literally we were in TV studio first getting all the makeup, professional makeup people. That was a little different for me. I'd been on Christian TV programs before, but I'd never been through anything like that. And the makeup room I was in, when they had celebrities in there, celebrities would often give them a picture, and they posted their pictures. And uh, who had gotten makeup in that room. We had a picture of Hillary Clinton there. Picture of Joe Biden. Picture of Henry Kissinger. I felt a touch out of place. Now, you'll find this strange. They never asked me for my picture. But uh, the other three men that spoke that day, they, they would begin by saying, you know, they, King James Bible was influential and good and all that kind of thing. But they want to make it clear, they were not one of those people. You know, believed it was the Word of God in English. So I just smiled and sat through the thing and gathered what I could and got up my time to speak and I got up and say, just for the record's sake, I am one of those people. And, and gave them reasons why. And afterwards, one of the men, he was actually there from India uh, to speak on the, the history of the translators. And he said to me afterwards, he said, you weren't embarrassed by that at all. So of course I wasn't. And he talked a little bit, I said, I have absolute faith that the God who could give the words in the first place, which is what he believed, could preserve them. I don't have any problem with that. And I also don't have any problem with saying I found out where they are. And I'm not saying only in English or that God doesn't work in other languages. English is the language I'm capable of dealing with. But we have such a light view of God, we almost ask surprised when God does something. But this is the story of Cyrus. And so I'd like to deal with this question tonight. What does the Bible mean when the Bible says that Cyrus is coming? Cyrus, very famous king. 
He, he was the uh, ruler of the Medes and the Persians. Very famous character on world history. Uh, when I pastored in Chicago, we were not far from an Iranian restaurant that I went to often. I liked the food there. I got to know the owner, and he was just a huge fan of Cyrus. You could go to his restaurant, and there were things up about Cyrus, and he belonged to a study group that studied Cyrus's life, and just big into Cyrus, and, and Cyrus's influence, and all that kind of thing. He gave me lots of information about Cyrus, and a lot of it was very interesting, fascinating. But, I mean, he was extremely influential. But here's the problem. The passage we're about to read was written 200 years before Cyrus was born. Let's pick up verse 28 of chapter 44. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, to whose right hand I have beholden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee, and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass, and cut asunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness, and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and for Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. There it is in the Bible. It's a prophecy. Many prophecies in the Bible are not yet fulfilled. They're a long way off. Sometimes there are prophecies to be fulfilled shortly. Sometimes a little farther down the road, which is what this is. Some prophecies have not been fulfilled yet. Here's a prophecy. Cyrus is coming. And it was interesting. Because there's a 200-year gap before he actually comes. Jewish teachers were trying to figure out what to do with this. What does it mean when the Bible says Cyrus is coming? Some thought it was a prophecy of the Messiah. Some have come along and said, well, you know, it really wasn't 200 years early. It came after the time of Cyrus, and somebody forged that and stuck it in the book. But, but that's hard to come to grips with for several reasons, not the least of which Jewish rabbis were already dealing with the subject of who Cyrus was before Cyrus ever came. And so you have to address, see, for these folks that, what is Cyrus symbolic of? Y'all ready? Cyrus was symbolic of Cyrus. And when you understand that, a number of important truths come into place. Here's the first one. We have an incredible God, a creator God, who is able to put all the pieces together. And he knew just as much about Cyrus 200 years before he was born as anybody did after Cyrus came. Matter of fact, if you just flip over for a second into chapter 46 and verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none else. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. See, there's nobody like this. By the way, there are no religious books like this. 
There are a lot of religious books that base their authority by describing things that are supposed to have happened a long time ago. Bible's authority was based on describing that which was going to come, which could be seen and which could be observed and which could be understood. You say, how in the world did they know? What possible explanation could there be for their knowing? Are you ready? The words weren't men's words. They were God's words. And God knew. I believe, and some of my friends don't agree with me on this, but I believe God dictated the very words of Scripture to men. And they weren't their words. I believe that when Solomon wrote, what an absolute fool you were if you got misled by immoral women, that he didn't really want to write that. Because in the history of the world, there's never been a bigger fool than the one he described applied to himself. I believe when the Bible says that, and it has, we have Moses writing, and Moses writes that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. I don't think Moses wanted to write that. I, I think when he, Lord, do we have to say that? I mean, seriously, is that what a meek person says about themselves? If, if I'd sent Brother Bloom a letter and said, you don't know how fortunate you are. I've had the privilege of preaching in chapel for Brother Beal once. And if I'd sent him a letter, I said, Brother Beal, you don't know how fortunate you are because I'm the most humble preacher on the face of the earth and you get to have the most humble preacher there is in your chapel today. I have a suspicion it wouldn't be well received. But Moses wrote that about himself because they were God's words, not his. Daniel chapter 12, Daniel's trying to figure out what in the world Daniel chapter 11 is about. You try reading it sometime without a reference Bible, and you'll understand why he had trouble figuring it out. I have trouble figuring it out, but it doesn't bother me too badly when I find out that Daniel had trouble figuring it out. The words were God's. And he is God. He knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And he delivers the word of God. There is a lesson in this about Cyrus, about what the word of God is like. It is supernatural. That's the grandeur of our God. Another lesson is how to interpret prophecy. Folks do this all the time. All kinds of cults and religions are built on it. They go to the Bible trying to figure out, what does it mean when the Bible says Jesus is going to reign on this earth for a thousand years? What is the thousand years symbolic of? Y'all ready? Symbolic of a thousand years. We had a lady saved in church I pastor in Chicago, Pakistani lady, and she had just gotten saved. And I, anytime somebody gets saved, I give them a Bible. And I'd say, read it. Don't worry about what you don't understand. Read it till you get a blessing every day. And, and if something bothers you, call me. She'd been saved for two weeks. She called me. She says, Pastor, I have a question, but I'm afraid it's a silly question. She got saved out of Islam. There is no such thing as a silly question when you've been saved out of Islam for two weeks. She said, well, she said, I thought I read something in the Bible, and I thought, that can't be right, but I think I just read it again. She said, is Jesus coming back? Said, Most of us grew up with that. That's brand new information to her. That wasn't in the gospel message. I had never thought to mention it when she was getting saved. She said, Jesus coming back? You want to know why she thought he was coming back? The Bible said so. 
Interestingly enough, she lived two blocks from Chicago Seminary, one of the most liberal seminaries in the country. I said, not only are you right, I said, you're the best theologian in your neighborhood. <laughs> what, what does it mean that when it says, the Bible means when it says Cyrus is coming? It means Cyrus is coming. That's how you interpret prophecy. There's another lesson in this. Who can prevent the will of God from being fulfilled? The story of Cyrus is an incredible one. His grandfather was a king, and the king of the Medes. And for some reason, when he was born, his grandfather felt threatened by him, feeling that the age would just be right, that his grandson could grow up and challenge him for the throne as he got elderly. And um, he left instructions for his baby grandson to be killed. The instructions were given to a henchman that had carried out some reprehensible things for him before. Henchman didn't really want to kill a baby, but, but that was his job. But he got a shepherd, hired a shepherd that had done some heinous things for him before and paid him to kill the baby. So it happened that very time, his wife, the shepherd's wife, was giving birth and her baby was born dead. And she was heartbroken. He said, well, I can solve two things at once. He kidnapped Cyrus put the body of the dead baby in Cyrus's crib so that the princess would think that her baby had died, took Cyrus and gave Cyrus to his wife so that she would have a baby to raise and to help with her grief. So emperor thinks Cyrus is dead. But see, you can't kill Cyrus when God has plans for him that he has announced. Cyrus grows up, not having any idea other than that he's a shepherd's son. As he begins to reach his young adult years, his adoptive father finally breaks down and tells him the truth and the story about who he is. And he's angry that his grandfather tried to kill him, and he makes up his mind to overthrow his grandson and take the kingdom. His grandfather would take the kingdom. And he does. He organizes a rebellion, overthrows his grandfather, takes over the kingdom, then conquers the Persians, the neighboring kingdom, and now he is the, the emperor of the Medes and Persians. They want to challenge Babylon, which is the superpower of the day. Babylon is so strong because the city of Babylon has been designed by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was famous because as a general and then as a king, he besieged 34 different cities and conquered every one of them. So he designed to build Babylon as a city that nobody could conquer. He knew that when they conquered cities, one of the key things was starving them out, denying them water. So he built Babylon to be huge, and half of the city was devoted to the production of food. Farms, ranches, so forth. They could produce their own food supply and last for a long time. Another issue was tearing down walls. He built the biggest walls, highest, tallest, and thickest walls the world had ever seen. You weren't going to knock those walls down. 
and, and everybody was instructed and prepared that if they were ever, Babylon's ever attacked, there's ever an army outside the walls, you just pull back inside the walls, continue to produce food. You were at the crossing of two rivers, you had water. Uh, nobody could knock the walls down. The, the army should be able to protect it easily and you would be able to survive any siege because that's what he knew about was besieging cities. Cyrus sends his army under Darius after Babylon and they do just that. They pull into the city. They have food supply. They have water supply. They have walls that even Cyrus's army can't knock down. They are ready. As a matter of fact, they are so, and, and the actual king was not there. Belshazzar was the king's son. And Belshazzar was there and they said, we're so secure. Belshazzar set up a feast for his ruling lords. And they will mock the army of the Persians that was outside the city. And along the way, while they're worshiping and honoring all the Persian gods, or Babylonian gods, he decides to collect the vessels, the bowls, the cups, and so forth, that came out of the temple of the one true God in Jerusalem, and he uses them as part of this drunken party. According to secular history, at the same time, the whole rest of the city is having a drunken party, and they're just mocking the army on the outside. Guards aren't even paying attention to what's going on. They're all part of the drunken feast. But in this drunken feast, Belshazzar is mocking the God of Israel and the God of creation. Be crystal clear, nobody ever does that and gets by. Nobody ever does. You've seen a lot out in California and talking about as they, they change laws relating to pedophilia and things of that nature. Some of their folks have said they want God out of California. Man, that's a dangerous thing to say. I remember some years back watching on television the beginning of the first Gulf War and I wondered if God was going to use the Gulf War to judge the United States and they were interviewing Saddam Hussein and uh, he made a statement. It was in the famous statement where he said it's going to be the mother of all battles. But he made the statement that in this war, we're going to find out who the real God is. Jehovah or Allah. So boy, that was a bad statement to make. Boy, nobody really wants to be in that position no matter what they say. And of course, you all know the story, the first Gulf War went against him dramatically, but the background to that, the thing they were all concerned about was poison gas, and they'd prepared our troops and all that kind of thing, but the poison gas was here. But right as they began to invade and attack Saddam's army, the typical winds that would blow this way switched and were blowing back on them, and they could not use the gas. You don't want to mess with the crater God. Belshazzar shouldn't have messed with the crater God. Because Cyrus and Darius had a plan. They took the Tigris River and out of sight of the walls, they dammed the Tigris River so that the water is flowing away and not being replaced by new water coming in. And Babylon had these big gates where they had the river entrances, the four of them. They had huge gates that you could drop there. A person could walk through the gates, but a boat could not get through the gates. And they dropped the gates for protection. Except as the water dried up, 
the Persian army walked right through the gates, which were not watched because the Babylonian soldiers were engaged in a drunken feast. They marched right in. You, you all know the story. When Belshazzar's having his wild, drunken festival, and he looks up and there is a hand there writing on the wall. And among the things the hand wrote was that the Medes and the Persians were going to conquer. And while the hand is writing it on the wall, the army of the Medes and the Persians is coming into Babylon, meeting no resistance. According to secular history, they did not suffer one casualty in taking Babylon. Incredible. They march in. They got control of everything. Next day, the people of Babylon recognized him as their ruler. Belshazzar is put to death. Other leaders are put to death. But man, there's some details there. He said, I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. The soldiers just went in and raised the gates. Verse 3, it says, I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. The priests of Babylon had accumulated incredible treasures in the temples. And Cyrus's soldiers just went in and looted the temples. They got the treasure out of the secret places, out of the dark, just exactly like the Bible said they would. And then, according to history, Ezra tells us that somebody did. History tells us that Daniel did. Daniel goes in to see Cyrus and says, here's the prophecy of your coming from 200 years before, and this is how God said you would take Babylon, and then this is what God said you would do, that you would send the children of Israel back to the land. And three times in the passage we just read, God said that he was naming Cyrus by name so that when the time came, Cyrus would know that God was speaking to him so that he would send the children of Israel back. Cyrus was no dummy. Somebody showed him where this was prophesied 200 years ago. Cyrus didn't argue with it. Now, if he'd argued with it, God would have had a way to work on him. Ask, ask uh, uh, Pharaoh. He sends the children of Israel back because there it was, right there in the scriptures, God saying that he was coming 200 years before he was born. By the way, and I got this from the Iranian man that ran a restaurant. He, whenever he'd see me there, he'd come out and talk with me about this. Cyrus, according to Iranian history, Persian history, after the conquest of Babylon, Cyrus became a believer in one God instead of all the gods of the Persians. He began to practice religious liberty, no longer using the throne to impose any kind of worship on the people in his kingdom. He became an advocate of government by law. Remember how you'd read about the law, the Medes and the Persians, and there was the law and they had to obey the law. Even Darius had to obey the law. He became an advocate of rule by law. 
And to this day in Iran, there are people who are praying that God would send them a modern day Cyrus to bring all that to Iran today. And that's what this man was a part of. And he showed me their websites and their information and material, all the things they had to say about Cyrus. I believed without being able to prove it. The, after Cyrus found out he'd been prophesied in the Bible 200 years before he was born, he might just have wanted to know from Daniel some more about the God that prophesied it. And that maybe the dramatic change in Cyrus could be explained by his trusting the coming Messiah as his Savior and having a relationship with the one true God that he now worshipped as the one true God. I can't prove that. But I have a suspicion it's true. So, what does the Bible mean when it says Cyrus is coming? It means Cyrus is coming. So, but what if the emperor is opposed to it? What if he's hired someone who's hired someone to kill him? Now, if the Bible says Cyrus is coming, Cyrus is coming. I don't know about you, I just take the greatest comfort in that. If the Bible says my salvation is secure, I am conscious of the fact I did not earn my salvation in the first place. And I am conscious of the fact I do not earn my salvation continuing. But you want to know what God said about it? He described it as eternal salvation. And everlasting salvation. Do you know what it means when God calls something everlasting? You want to know what everlasting is symbolic of? Lasting forever. I take great comfort in that. I take great comfort. In fact, the issue is not me, it's him. I take great comfort in the fact when the Bible repeatedly says over and over again that salvation is for all men. Do you know what all is symbolic of? I'm going to tell you, I'm a bus kid, remember, I told you that story. Bus kids get this better than some seminary professors. Let me explain this. If you got up in junior church and you said, when junior church is over, we're going to give all of you candy. And then it was over and we said, I really meant I'm going to give half of you candy. There's not a bus kid in the world that would accept that. They all know better instantly. I tried it as an experiment one time to prove the point. You know what all is symbolic of? All. We constantly are trying to limit the sovereignty of God. But so you get scared you mention the sovereignty of God. Listen, and I've seen folks and I've read the material and all that and they say, if God's sovereign, he must have predestined some to heaven and some to hell. And my answer to that is always this, you do not tell a sovereign God what he has to do. Amen. He tells you what he has done. And the only issue is what he has told you. And whatever he said, so I don't see how he can be sovereign. You don't have to see it. All you have to do is believe what he told you. I was out in Maryland and preaching and um, the folks told me, said, you know, there's a young man, he's been here at church the last seven weeks and he's come forward on the invitation to talk about salvation seven weeks in a row, but he hadn't got saved. And uh, we just wanted you to know. And, and I always give the invitation to the pastor. I believe the pastor knows the setting better than anybody. And, and so I preached on salvation. I gave the pastor the invitation. And this young man, I sat on the front row, a young man came over and sat next to me. He said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He said, 
He said, I, I know the folks here think I'm not serious. But he said, I really do want to get saved. But he said, this doesn't make any sense. How could somebody else pay for my salvation? Surely I have to pay for my own salvation. This is just not logical. I said, this may surprise you. I don't think it's logical either. Matter of fact, we never call it logic. We constantly refer to it as grace. But I said, along the way, I've developed a few little philosophies in life I live by. Here's one of them. I never argue with anyone that can raise themselves from the dead. Now, be honest, this does not come up very often. He said, but when the Lord explains salvation as believe, you want to know what I think believing is symbolic of? Believing. And if that's how the Lord explains it, then that's what I believe about it. He stood up, looked at me, and said, I believe. Came back to church that night, told the church he trusted Christ as his Savior. And they baptized him. I preached at the church a year later, and he was there, active, busy, serving the Lord. This is about getting a hold of one thing. You want to know what the Bible means when it says Cyrus is coming? Cyrus is coming, and you know how I know? Because God said so. That's all. That's the whole issue. I don't have to understand. It doesn't have to fit my reasoning. It doesn't have to match human logic. It doesn't have to be popular. It doesn't have to fit my background. It doesn't have to go with the culture. God said so. When the Lord said Cyrus was coming, there wasn't any power on the planet that could stop Cyrus from coming. When the Lord says all men can be saved, there's no power on earth that could prevent somebody from being saved. And I don't have to know anything other than that God said that. You can apply this to any part of Scripture. When the Bible tells a man how to treat his wife, you can talk about modern psychology and this, that, and the other, and relationship counseling and all that. But, and then we should just believe what God said about it. Or tells a wife how to treat her husband. Or tells parents how to raise their children. Or Bible tells us what doctrine is. And we're uncomfortable with it. Because we don't like it. You folks are so spiritual this probably never happened to you. But there's some things in the Bible I don't like. I mean I get it. Every time the Bible and I has a problem, guess whose problem it is? I haven't always been crazy about that stuff in the Bible about forgiving everybody. If I had written the Bible, that phrase would be modified. Just one little problem. I didn't write it. I'm not in charge here. He's not just in charge of our lives, of our churches. He is in charge of the universe. And if God says Cyrus is coming, Cyrus is coming. And it's my job to simply believe it as it was their job to believe it. Can you imagine how surprised Cyrus was when they brought him this? 
Not only did God say he was coming, he says three times, I've told you that by called you by name so that you would know this message is from me. I imagine that must have been quite a day for Cyrus. He wasn't stupid enough to argue with it. He sent the children of Israel back. Listen, get a hold of the grandeur of the Creator God that we're dealing with. If he says Cyrus is coming, Cyrus is coming. And you can go anywhere in his word and whatever it is he tells you, you can count on that on the authority of the sovereign God of the universe. We'd be a whole lot better off if we remembered who we were dealing with. God speaks to your heart about any of this. Don't think it's an accident you're here. Don't pass it off as meaningless or a suggestion or a coincidence. If the Lord would speak to your heart about salvation, you ought to trust Christ before this evening's over. The Lord speaks to your heart about something else, that you're in defiance of the God of the universe over, and make it right. Make it right, make it right now. Because God said Cyrus was coming. Guess what happened?